On behalf of Trust Tech, welcome to Don't Forget the Occupier, making smart buildings work for everyone. Um, we're shortly going to go to a discussion with our expert panel who represents different corners of the conversation. But before we do that, I'm going to hand over to Freddie Pritchard-Smith, co-founder of Trust Tech, um, who's going to kind of set up the topics that we're going to be talking today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Duncan. Well, as Duncan gave a very good intro to it, I think just to remind those that have come along to it that what the objective of what we've done today. So first of all, thank you so much for coming along. Really greatly appreciate your support for what we're doing. And the objective today is to actually identify that there's a lot of events that happen where there's silo discussions. So it'll be a landlord event, a tech event, a workplace event. And something that we feel very passionate about is actually as a consultant, we get to sit kind of outside of all of those and listen to all the different stakeholders. And really the frustration we had is that there's a lot of alignment in these discussions, but they're not happening together enough. So that's why we put this together. As part of the, the context of the panel, um, they've been selected from an esteemed group of people, not because the other people weren't great as well, but actually we really felt that the voices that came through were really important. So before we did this, we actually run individual panels with groups of people, uh, the stakeholders beforehand to get their feedback, to get their views, but in their safe space with all their other people, their peer group, and actually going, what do you feel? What are you feeling? What's going on in the industry from landlords to prop tech to operators? And ultimately, what we wanted to do is actually summarize those things and the key points that came out of those discussions, because we couldn't have everyone on the panel because it'd be the room would be massive. So some of my real favorite quotes that we've done from these previous sessions and um, that I kind of want to highlight, and we're going to start with the bad stuff and hopefully end with the good before we actually kick off the panel. One of the big ones for me is prop tech. It's not my problem. Landlords believe that operators should solve it and the tenant should pay for it. This constant cycle of blame, accountability, challenges, actually really we find stifle innovation being deployed and tenants don't use the tech and who pays for it? Those questions are constantly spoken about in all different verticals and it came up consistently across all of them. And my personal favorite, which we couldn't not share because um, unfortunately they weren't here today, the description of a smart, sustainable building for people who actually operate it is like driving a Bugatti Veyron to do your supermarket shop in it. Just totally not fit for purpose, way over-engineered and actually what we really need is so much further away and so much simpler in many ways. So the challenge is, so the reason why the panel are turning around is because they haven't seen this. So they haven't seen what actually they all said about each other or they said about the problems. So this is why they're just double checking to make sure that the discussion today will either agree or disagree with this. And that's really the, hopefully a bit of fun about this whole part of it. But the lack of awareness, there is so much technology in that exists, but actually are people aware of it? Do they really know what's going on? There are so many accreditations available at the moment, like which one's the right one? What does it really mean? What's the most valuable thing that people want to get from it? Too much choice. We talk a lot about the 10,000 plus prop tech solutions that exist in the market. Which one's the right one for you? Service charge costs, adoption, value proposition, really challenging. All these things are faced by alignment of every single one of the stakeholders on the panel today. There are a few peripheral ones, which I think is also important. The things that actually were most important to each of the stakeholders, and this is about occupiers, left out of the conversation. Too often these things happen, decisions are made without their engagement with an occupier, with their group and decision. And that's something that we really want to change. On the positive side, so what is a smart building? What things do I actually want from a smart building? This is the big question we want to try and answer and distill down to the most valuable parts of it. What was really interesting for us is the consistency. There's actually not that many things that were outside of actually, we all want the same thing. We're all pushing towards the same thing, but actually we're not necessarily delivering it. So 
energy optimization, cost reduction, access to data. I want to have information about it. I want to have consistently. I want it to be easy for me to get hold of. But also building utilization. So workspace, you know, have I got enough people on site? How many people are coming to site? A problem that COVID has obviously massively pushed forward, but it's very relevant and in, like critical information for all the stakeholders, be it from ESG reporting, be it from property management, or be it just from a general operation perspective. Issue reporting, the classic, and communication. From the landlord side, that was a really important one for them. We want to have access to be able to talk to people, for them to talk to us, to be visible and accessible for them. The Occupy one, no fluffy apps. Uh, I'll leave that open to interpretation and hopefully for a discussion later on today. But yeah, just kind of that's our summary for what we did before today. And today, obviously, it's not. We can change this, we can rip it up, we can start again. But that's really, hopefully, a bit of context of what you all said about each other and what you said about the problem. And I suppose now it's over to Duncan to lead the, the questions and discussions. Great. Thanks, Freddie. Um, just before we start, I know the panellists will be known to many of you, but I thought if we can just go from Amanda down the line and just say um, a little bit about your business and, and what you do. I'm Amanda Irwin. I'm the Director of Workplace Consultancy for Devono. We are tenant-only advisory from workplace strategy, what I do, through to um, leasehold, flex, and we also have um, in-house design and build. I'm Adam Forster from Redevco. Redevco are an investment manager with platform all across Europe with seven offices and 10 billion euros under management, primarily a retail portfolio spawning out of the, the CNA department stores. Um, so they were repurposing before repurposing was cool and now turning into sort of multi-use lots of offices and getting more into the residential built-around sphere. I'm Helen K. Penny. I work at Avora Global. We are an ESG consulting, but also uh, have a data management platform. Uh, so on the tech side, but we are also wider than that with the consultancy as well. Hi, I'm Adrian Dagg. I'm a partner at SHW. We are a general property consultancy, so all multidisciplinary services. My specialism is I'm head of property management, so from the operator side, helping everybody get to the end solution. Great. We know who you are, Freddie. Yeah, I don't like it. Good. I'd, I'd just like to start with a real sort of benchmark question in terms of the, what you might call the health of the, the occupier conversation around tech and, and smart buildings, just to get a sense of you know, because today is about trying to improve that conversation and, and find ways of, of connecting. But Amanda, you're working with occupiers and you're looking at, at future work and future working practices, which obviously inform this subject greatly. From that onlooker point of view, what do you think of the conversation between property providers? And we'll come on to Adam in a moment. You know, how clear is that channel at the moment or how effective is that channel? Yeah, and no, I mean, it, it's still really siloed, as Freddie's already mentioned. And I think that the different silos aren't talking to each other or aren't talking to each other in the right order. So you might have the, the prop tech guys who try to sell to the occupiers or try to sell to the landlords. But then you don't have the prop tech providers calling up the occupiers and saying, what do you want? They just say, you need this. They don't call and ask, actually, is this what you need? And then you may not have the actual prop tech providers then training the managers of the space. And so there's this whole kind of broken system. And ultimately, it, it comes down to when we're helping clients choose buildings, it's really what's already there and then see how you can tap into that. And Adam, you're, you're creating these spaces. You, you know, you're, you're trying to fire at a moving target in many respects, not least, you know, what's happened in the past three years. And just, as Freddie said, the sheer proliferation of, of 
tech solutions. Yeah. How how do you approach that conversation with occupiers in terms of, you know, is, is it before the fact, before you create a space, or is it when you get to the leasing stage? Or yeah, I, I think you need to go back a step before you can talk about the tech because how we're using office space has completely changed since COVID. So you can come up with an app or a tech piece that is useful, but actually occupiers are readdressing how you're using the space. What do we want from it? How can we adapt into hybrid work? How can we make it sort of multi-use, multi-flex, town hall space? What do we want? So before we start overlaying tech layers, I think we need to go back, properly look at how space is used first. But it's exactly the same. We get inundated. I mean, it's not the 10,000, but it feels like it's verging on that with, you need this tech, you should have this. And the different layers of the business that get the uh, various emails, it suddenly comes across your desk. You need this app. You need this tech. Well, hang on a minute. You don't know the use case. And then we have to go back through that. So thanks to Freddie, who's helping me filter these all out. But it's half of the battle, I think, at the moment. It's what do you want? Well, first, what does the occupier want? And it's trying to piece all that together. And Helen, I mean, you you have to make that use case. I mean, obviously you have ESG as a, as a major ally or driver on your side. But how has that use case and that conversation changed with the providers and their end users? Well, I mean, we're talking to landlords and landlords are our clients. Um, but we do get asked increasingly by the landlords of how does your technology help us engage with our occupiers? What would be, I mean, they need occupational data, ESG data. It helps them with all of their reporting. They need to be able to collect it. It's very difficult to collect. Uh, we approach it from green leases as well as you know, much wider than that from the data that's held within the building itself. But it is more and more increasingly becoming relevant that they know that they need to go back to the occupier and engage on that. And how is the tech facilitating those conversations and the wider services? And Adrian, I mean, property managers, operators, they're, to use a technical term, kind of piggy in the middle in, in this time in terms of, you know, I think there was one of, one of the quotes you put up, Freddie, was about, you know, sort of uh, operators, you know, are being mandated to do it, but are, you know, well, why is it up to us? And I think where you're being managed down from the property providers and up from the, the occupiers, what's the nature of the conversation? Uh, nature of the conversation is trying to find a middle ground. So I think that's what a lot of property managers are about is, you know, what they listening to both the occupiers, both the landlords and trying to find the solution that's presented a lot of the time. Because it's generally, actually, there's a solution. We've decided on this. It's going to work because I've been told it's going to work by the person who just sold it to me. And it's actually doing that engagement piece with the occupiers about understanding what they want and how it could be implemented. Mm. And how you get this take up and this buying. And, is, and Freddie, is your is your client base changing in its proportions of you know whose provider, whose occupier? Are you firmly sitting next to the providers and and guiding them from a technology perspective, or from no? We we definitely sit in the middle, not the in the middle. But we're lucky as a consultant, kind of on the outside of it. But I think it's even listening to going down the line about it. It's sort of. Who's the person that has the knowledge to help you select the right thing to do it, to filter through what you need to do and the accountability piece of, okay, we need this data, we need to understand what's there. I'm being chased and hounded to get it. I think one of the things that you said in the pre-panel was about actually when you get to these buildings, how much data is automated? Do people actually know where it is? And the person that's been sold it is not necessarily the person that uses it. And I think that's where operators really 
not fall down, but the real challenge sits with them is that, you know, I know when I run my own technology business, I'd hound Adam for six months, get him to sign my contract. Then he'd introduce me to you and you'd be like, who are you? What do you do? I was like, I've got a great product. And then I'd go and meet Amanda and she's like, I don't want to. I've been complaining about this for the last six months. And that cycle seems to happen quite a lot. And I think, you know, part of this discussion is who is the person in the stakeholder group that should be the one to put the flag in the sand to go, it's my job. I'm going to go and find it and implement it and share the data upstream or downstream. And that's the, I think is the bit of the unknown and part of the educational challenge in the industry, really. Not that answers your question, but. No, but, but in terms of breaking that cycle, you know, what's going to be the, the wedge as it was, it, does it always come back to cost? Does it always come back to money? I mean, obviously what we've seen, you know, the reference to what's happened in terms of working practice over the last three years, but we've also had a cost of living crisis and energy. Um, we all look at energy, it's provision, it's cost, it's usage in a very different way uh, to what we did, you know, a year or so ago. Are occupiers more aware of that, that sort of cost in use and, and obviously the fact that you may only have um, 60% of your workforce in a, in a workplace each week, is that something which is helping to get them to engage with sort of tech solutions and tech monitoring? Yeah, I think it's definitely the driving force. Um, but that being said, some tenants aren't always aware of kind of what's going on with their energy usage. So until they have a service charge or they're in a contract, a surcharge is being redone where they have a contract up with their uh, energy providers, they're not necessarily seeing that impact yet. So it's ones who are moving, um, who are moving offices, who are paying a lot more attention to it. Um, however, everyone is, is interested in the ESG conversation. So when we're talking about, well, what do you want from your technology in this building? It is, well, it's something that can help us meet our ESG goals, which is really difficult as a tenant because you have very little say over actually what goes on in the building. You can just hopefully get the information for yourself. But it's something that people are interested in, but the kind of levels really depends on where you are in your lease or, or your contract with, mm. with energy providers. So I, mean, I guess ESG is a wrapper which is enveloping everything now. And Adam, from your perspective, Redefco as an entity has to have uh, awareness and commitment to ESG. And, and you're looking at that and you're occupied. How is that now linking up through the actual product of the buildings that you're, you're creating? It is certainly the driver. There's a big focus on innovation generally, but I think from a top-down level clarity on this is the data we need to record, this is why, and this is where it goes, it makes the application and the use case for it all because there is so much data you can get. But if we're feeding into a machine that actually isn't useful, what's the point? And it's then hard to justify that by a service charge or try and make a tenant pay for it if it's data for data's sake. So I think there needs to be a, a uniformity of data and reasons for it so we know what we're going to capture, why, and then you can narrow that conversation down. So I think that's probably the biggest driver. And the lack of definition of what a smart building is. I think everyone certainly internally gets very excited. Oh, it's a smart building. And it does really understand what that means and why it would be smart and who it's actually going to benefit. What, what would be a smart building for you? What were its, its kind of key characteristics? I think, I think you'd have to go right back to the beginning pre-acquisition. And if you had a digital twin that would speed up your due diligence, you know what you're walking into from a, an asset management starting point, you can then sort of narrow down that first year of ownership you know where the problems are know what the the good bits know where you can change so if we had that as a as a platform and a base to start on you're not starting your audit before you start begin yeah because the digital twinning I, uh, 
I met somebody at MIPIM who, was, who does this, and they do it for Sainsbury's uh, and Google, funnily enough. And, and there was a lot, they were telling, walking me through this. I mean, is this a technique that's, that's increasingly used? It was something that was new to me. And how does it work? It literally runs a model of the building that you're going to create and it models kind of how it works and adding all that's you. I think that's the theory. But again, there's no global common definition of what is a digital twin. You could have a nice marketing walkthrough tool, or you can have something that's essentially a, a BMS on speed. But again, it goes back into the problem of this is information overload. Yeah. And do we need to know the complete data from heat pump seven on top deck roof? Or maybe not, not for the purpose of that. So it's, it's a lack of clarity in what we're doing. Yeah. Ellen, you were smiling there. Is this no, all I was thinking every, everyone is on such a different journey there and they're in a different place of the journey. And you've got some landlords that have got really advanced targets that they've set. They've got big legislation requirements depending on who they are as an organisation. You've got others that need to check a box. They know it's important, but they don't have an ESG strategy. They don't really know where to start. And it's the same with an occupier. They Some occupiers... All they're going to want to know is how can I reduce my costs? Are you going to be providing me with something that's going to give me a way of reducing my electricity costs or whatever? Whereas others are going to say, we want to, because of the organisation we are, we need a building that's going to reach net zero. And that's where we're going to pay a premium in lease because of that, because it's aligned with our agenda. And I think it's recognising the different journey and what's important to different people and therefore some tech will be completely irrelevant or it's how you position it in that sense maybe it is the tech company maybe it's a tech company that needs to engage with all the different stakeholders and explain what the benefit is to each person yeah. as in whether that's the property manager the occupier the to make sure that that's adopted but having spoken to someone recently who is very much on sort of the smart meter side uh, very much at asset level their frustration is Every time a building sold, you've got to re-edge, which you can see that that's a constant cycle that you wouldn't want to get into. So, so there's kind of two flows of value: one's the the financial value mm. of, of this innovation, and one's the corporate value of you're doing the right thing and you're you're preparing for a level of reporting that is going to become commonplace. I yes. guess so. The time. And Adrian, I mean, you must see this up close in terms of data collection, but does it go into a big box and then do anything, or is it just being collected? There's a mishmash. So some data is collected is really quite useful. And as a property manager, you can look at it. Once you've got your head around it, had a bit of training and drill down, and go, actually, this looks wrong. And therefore, you can then go to your specialist, like your m and contracts, and say, actually, can we have a look at this a bit further? Is this working properly? Is something going wrong? We seem to be running the plant all the time. The data's actually out there at the moment, but it's all with the electricity companies and you've got to get it out in a spreadsheet. And you just have to go, all I've got is rows and rows of columns. So the great thing about the AMRs is it comes back in a nice little graph. So it's so much easier to read. And then you get the specialist, the data to drill down into it. But I'd like to go back to a point that's raised earlier about what tenants are looking for. So I was talking to our office agents the other day. So we do a lot of commercial agency around the southeast, not a huge amount of big stock in London. And around the southeast, the conversations, the questions are, oh, how sustainable is the building? And like, is it green rated? 
they're not getting questions of tenants, potential occupiers saying, okay, so what's the tech in the building? How would it get me data out of it? And what can we do with that data to help us as a business for our own CSR reporting and actually help us manage the property to reduce the consumption costs and make it more efficient and reduce the running cost of the building? So I think there's the larger corporates probably need to lead on this a bit, along with the larger investor landlords to say, actually, this is what can be done. So I think it really needs some parties to lean in together and sort of work, how can we do this together? Rather than saying, because there's all this talk about landlords, occupiers, operators, and it is just our little Venn diagram earlier, we should have been like a TP. But then Amanda, like the, the acquisition agents, you know, the, the team that represent them, obviously that's not you, so I'm not throwing you into the, the line of this, but you know, as part of the advisory services, like it are those questions of, you know, interrogating a BRIAM and we talk a lot about BRIAM in construction, not BRIAM in operation, but part of the agents talking about it, are they educating the clients who you should be thinking about mm. these things? You know, you're asking me about the sustainability, but actually here's a whole other thing you should be thinking about. Is it, should be acquisition-led or? Yeah, you know, with, with our agents, it's really, if the client is interested in it, they'll ask some more questions, but it's an, it's an education piece on clients don't know the right questions to ask. Our agents don't quite know the right questions to ask. Sometimes the leasing agents have a really nice brochure, but they don't really know if you had to ask them a question, they might not be able to answer you. So there's a real knowledge gap, I think, between, to be, between everyone, honestly. And there's this the whole area of accreditation, um, you know, from EPCs right through to, you know, BRIAM excellence or whatever. In the sessions we did in preparation for this, it seemed that I'd always thought, well, that's that's the gold standard. That's the definitive marker that you want on a, on a building. That's got to be a good thing. But is it quite that straightforward? Because it seems to have, Adrian, you're shaking your head. <laughs> so you've got neighbours, which is the new rating scheme from Australia has come across because the problem is you can have a great building used inefficiently. So if everybody goes in and goes, this is a brilliant building and leaves everything on, this will burn more CO2 than the building which is potentially 20 years old where the occupiers turn everything off. So you can have a great building, but it's how it's used by the people in the building. And it's like light around home. How do you use around home? You can either use lots of electricity and lots of gas, or you can cut back and use less, but you need to use that conscious decision. And it's, that comes back to everybody working together. Everybody needs good neighbours. Yeah. I was, was going to say, isn't that what's great about neighbours is they do require, is every two years you have to get recertified? Yeah. Whereas BRIAM, as we were kind of talking about earlier, if there's the stat that it might be BRIAM in construction, but then only 14% of BRIAM buildings are then BRIAM in use. And so it's something that, that we look at as well when we're advising our clients, well, it's BRIAM this and it's EPC this. And then when they actually get in, what's the, what's the benefit that they're getting from it? So only 14% of buildings that are built as BRIAM yeah. compliant are actually then operated as... And if those buildings are actually operated correctly, if the if their operators know how to use the yeah. you know use the IBMS and things like this, um, it's kind of questionable. Yeah, and Adam, I mean, presumably as a as a developer, there's a lot of pressure on you to this is the gold standard. Exactly the problem. We go back to the office agent and say, "What rating do we need?" And they say, "Don't know. 
death by ratings is the uh, is the phraseology we've had. So we've gone for well, we've gone for various different sort of smart accreditations, and no, there's no uniformity at all in what we want to try and do. A as a business, and B for the right product. So it could be neighbours, but could be Briam, could be Briam in use, could be Briam in construction. So we stopped doing Briam in construction a while ago and just focused on Briam in use, in operation, post one year of a completion, just as a benchmark internally. But then as we're doing office schemes, it's exactly what do, what do we want? What does an occupier want? You know, is there any benefit to us from capital value point of view? Don't know. But actually, what do the occupiers want? We can go for a Briam, but if they're not bothered, what's the point? So we need help on that because there's just so many options. I think, again, going back to the earlier point, if there was a an overarching standard or rating that incorporated the smart tech, incorporated the, the wired technology, the wired score, and the ESG appropriate mits from both Neighbours, Well, and Briam, all as one, you know, almost like an EPC, A to E equivalent, that would make it a lot easier for everyone to understand because everything's incorporated. You know where, you know where you stand. But it's quite tricky to bring all of that under the same box because you might have something that's super prime or something that's secondary in Brighton. And if there's only a single uniform rating, it might be an unfair way to do it. Well, exactly. And the, the risk is one of the big questions. It's actually all this smarter tech, the smarter buildings. How would you apply it to a 20,000 square foot building in the market town in the UK? Which I think is the real challenge because how much of UK real estate emissions are generated out of properties owned by the major funds. Yeah, because it's not as big a proportion. I mean, obviously the LGIMs and the M&Gs and Avivas and stuff are, are, you know, they have to walk the walk. But, I mean, you've got a statistic, haven't you, about how much think you stock there? 30%, 30 to 40%, I believe. So we've still got... We've got another 60% of UK real estate generating the CO2 around the country. How is that tackled? And this is why I think it comes back to the larger landlords, the large corporates sort of trying to help take the lead on this. Because there's been the announcement today, isn't there, that the BPF and UK PropTech are merging together. And that may be a step to help, you know, give something more uniform to the industry. So it's very, in the property side, it's very disparate, yeah. But even the technology is. I mean, you'll have tech companies that sell to just occupiers and tech companies that sell just to landlords and... As we spoke about before, you have events for occupiers and you have events for landlords and then you have the prop tech events and trying to bring all of that together. Well done, Freddie. It, you know, it doesn't often happen, and which means that you've got different conversations. And I've been to events before where they tried to attract occupiers and there's a whole load of landlords and agents and things like that there and you've got three occupiers. I think I was speaking at that event, actually. I was one of three occupants. Of them? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? There we go. <laughs> the echo chamber. Yeah. But I suppose that comes back to the the one of the bigger challenges is that the relevance to a lot of these businesses is just not that important. You know, the key stats and the information that's actually they need and that's pertinent is sort of all the amazing digital twins and the exciting things you could do and the infinite optimist. You, know, you could have this, you could have that, but actually for many of them, if they don't work in real estate, they don't work in prop tech, they don't really care. It's a means to an end of a business where they're questioning how they operate from a hybrid working perspective and throw in 50 different options they could potentially have. And this bill, it's like, well, I just want the building to work. I want to have access to my utility. I want to know you're turning things off and I'm not here. It's often the basics done better. And with a, an accreditation going into it being like, well, I've been to this building, so if it's got that badge, that badge, that badge, you know, which one's best now for me? 
it's the education is not only on it, what the accreditations mean and what's most pertinent to them, but then also, do I actually really care about it? You know, we try to invite lots of occupiers to come to this and work with Amanda and her team to do it. And, you know, being frank, the, the room is not full of occupiers. You know, it's, we, we're trying to galvanize that education from inside the industry, but also from outside it to say, you know, this is valuable. You're saying you want this data. You've kind of got to come to the table to help us drive forward because they are the customer or the artist formerly known as, you know, so it's hard to get people interested about something that is that relevant to their core business. Well, I suppose traditionally you get people interested by not carrot, you get them interested with stick. Uh, and I mean, I think in, you know, is it in the Netherlands or something they're making, you know, data collection from real estate assets mandatory, um, which would obviously transform everybody's attitude to, to this kind of tech is, is that, is that where we're going is that, you know, it has to be more, more stick than carrot. I think it will have to eventually, otherwise there's always going to be a gap in data. But then it's also how do you share that data? So if you're wanting to get all the data, you're going to collect it quarterly or annually from the occupier, but then they never see the outcome of it. Um, so the landlord's collecting it all and they're utilising it, but then how do they go back to the occupier and say, right, this is your usage of X, Y, and Z, and this is how you could improve it. And we actually advising them on how they can do better is probably the missing link. On a lot of that. I don't know if it's GDPR or what it is, but oftentimes if we're trying to get, you know, that data and someone's in a, a large building, we say, oh, yeah, they have the swipe card data, but no, they can't give it to us. And so we can't actually be able to track footfall through swipe cards because it's there, but it's not able to, to get it. So regulations and sticks are really the way that we have to get there. But some of them, like GDPR, whilst it's great, um, is a bit of a barrier. Come on, Adam, why aren't you handling the data? <laughs> why can't we get the data? Often the case with the retail units, we've, uh, we just started a smart metering program. Legislation changed probably six months ago that meant that we can put a smart meter on the tenant's meter, and we're having those conversations now off the back of that. It's, we spent probably six months writing to them, please may we put a meter on, getting limited to the response. As soon as the legislation changed saying you can share that data, now we've got it. We're going back to them and saying, by the way, you know you're leaving all of this on at night. This is what the graph shows on a half-hourly basis. So the conversations are starting. It's, it's easier to have those now, A, obviously with the data, but B, in the knowledge we're actually trying to help them. I think there was a bit of that maybe GDPR-type fear, but now there's a, there's a sort of obvious benefit to it, especially in the energy crisis. It's, it's helping. The larger occupiers are more meaningfully having those conversations probably because they've got the reporting standards than the smaller ones but the smaller ones are the ones that are once you've had that conversation seeing the benefit of it from bottom line point of view so it's starting to happen adrian you were talking about the smaller asset size is, is that scenario playing out in in that, that sector as well sorry in what respect it worked just in terms of the, there's more connection or more more sharing of of data Although there's well, an appetite for occupiers. There is to a degree, but it's very much a conversation led by property managers. So it is an education piece. So we go out, with teams go out, and they will call it, have a coffee with somebody, have a chat with them, explain why they should have an AMR. And it is that time, and that's the invested time by the property managers. Okay, they're going around to their sites. But that's how a lot of it's being done. It's I think this whole sharing, if you, why do you want it? What's the benefit of it? What, what you know, why are you looking over my shoulder about consumption? 
because the narrative, is, as I think we spoke about earlier, is broken. It's fragmented narrative, and there's no, actually, this is what's happening. There's no common data. So um, we're on the Better Building Partnership, Managing Agent Partnership panel, and one of the things we've discussed about is all the data that comes in, all the big funds happening in different standards. So if you then push it back out, how do you get back out to your occupiers who they've got across several sites in a basis they can analyse it? It's all different. So they're then spending time. So therefore, everything becomes harder. When everything's harder, so. <laughs> I think yeah. the other thing is you also brought up is the shorter and shorter lease lengths. Yeah. So when you're coming with big capital investments to make big changes, it's like, well, the ROI is five years. It's like, well, my lease term's a year and a half. So quite frankly, I'm not that keen on this because I'm not going to get the benefit. And so you've got that other battle of doing it throwing the mix of actually we're putting the asset on the market to sell. It's like, well, I've just spent nine months getting everyone around the table to commit to doing it. And now you're going to sell the building and the new buyer might put that all in a bit. Yeah. So inherently a lot of these things can become, well, is it really worth it? Will it actually happen? And it, I can find it must be really frustrating from you to get to that point and hit that blocker. Yeah, there is. There are blocks like that. And it's, you have this whole lease structure issue, the length of term and actually the mechanisms within the lease because you, it's really hard to even spread cost over three, four, five years unless a landlord's going to self-fund it and drop it in each year. And when you get away from the big players and you've got an investor, it's like, do they have the money or the desire to drop in 20,000, 50,000 pounds and recoup it over five years? Okay, so I think we've established there's a problem. <laughs> in a minute, the panel are going to solve it. <laughs> but before that, I suppose we wind right back to sort of this introduction of tech into the provider-occupier relationship. You know, one of the first things was apps. Occupier apps were you know, going to be the future, was going to bring us all together, and then there would be an ability to not just share where's a good restaurant, uh, but also, you know, here's a data room with, you know, what your FD needs to know about the cost of your space and all the rest of it. So it was like a... But they just seem to have died, basically. I mean, you know, apps, is there... Or occupiers calling out for apps that do this at the next thing? I think that with apps, I mean, that was the way that people, like, not just occupiers, but users, understood a smart building. I said, oh, my app does all these things, so I have a smart building because I have an app that can control whatever and whatnot. But kind of, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So I worked on that project uh, many years ago, and we were trying to make it a platform that then plugged in City Mapper and Uber Eats or Uber, all of these things we could do through one app. But it's actually just easy enough to open up the app. And so often the apps are just really hard to maintain. And so they spend so much time developing it. And then one little thing breaks. And as soon as one little thing breaks, people lose, you know, they don't want to use the app. They're like, oh, it's always broken or, you know, if it doesn't do the basic things. So apps need to have a driving purpose for you to go in. So if it's, you know, to open up your building, then you have to open the app, you have to interact with it. Um, but I, I think it's, it's just people got overloaded with apps. And then also users don't necessarily want to download them on their phones. So even if you tell them you're going to get all of these great benefits, especially things like geofencing, where it's like, well, it'll, you know, it'll tell you when you're coming near the building and things like that, they don't want you to be tracking their phones. So... I think that, I don't know if that, have apps totally died? I mean, I, they haven't been talked about as much, but. <laughs> it's two people from app providers. I was going to say. Big smiles. Questions on that later. <laughs> Adam, sorry, is it, do you create apps to 
part market buildings and so it's exactly the same problem there's just so many different options out there that may or may not work in each individual use case and can you justify it just to the tenant through the service charge that there's a relevance to it if it's access you don't need an app for that if it's the data well do they actually want the data they've already got different offers coming into them 10 times a day via email so do they need another food voucher for five pound off over the road i don't think so so Without a justification for needing it, it's quite hard to say it works um, in the smaller building. Probably not. In a huge office complex where there's hundreds of thousands of people, maybe. But actually in a smaller individual case, it's hard to justify it. So does it come down to, I mean, if over time, less of the workforce will be in a building at a given time. So the theory is that businesses will take less space but make it work harder. Do apps just come down to something as simple as, as room booking or, you know, just something re- or desk booking? I guess if there's 600 people or 900 people and 600 desks, you need to, to book a desk. I mean, is that the sort of, you know, just something really functional and really related to the building? Is that the, the think, primary value? I think that's where a lot of the occupiers are at the moment. They're using apps as a booking system to book a desk. And so you can check in, you book on, you check in and you're using that so actually they know how the building's being occupied. Then that actually starts to give them data about actually what time they can ask the landlord to turn off the AC on their floor if it's multi-led. So the conversation comes differently. But if they're using this tech, they'd be using smart tech to a degree. I think probably people don't realise like a booking system is actually smart tech now. You know, we've never had this in this usage pre-COVID and this is one of the challenges, I think, is about breaking down this idea of what smart tech is to make it attainable for people. So they go, actually, yeah, okay, so use a book, that's smart tech. And then actually it's a roll-up process rather than saying, actually, we've got this massive fancy thing here, dropping it down and trying to roll it down. And that's really quite hard, but you build up to it. It's like buying better cars all the time. Well, well I like this. I'm going to upgrade my car to a better car. I'm going to upgrade up to, but then I'm not going to drive my Bugatti to Sainsbury's, am I? But are those apps being, they're being developed by the occupiers? They're not asking the, the landlord. Well, there's operator apps out there which can be used, but they don't necessarily want to use the operator app because they're probably just using a Microsoft system. So all their bookings. I think we're finding too that people who haven't yet cut their property down, um, People aren't using the booking systems because they don't have to, because there's so many desks that they, it's just, it's, why bother? So right now we're advising clients on how much they could reduce, which has still been great. Um, they're like, the, the booking data is not totally reliable because people come in and don't book or don't come in and book and, and that kind of thing. So until we have everybody down at their reduced figure, which our clients have been able to, on average, drop 39% of their space, um, until we have everybody there, that booking data isn't going to be as valuable. Mine, our take on it as well, is that a lot of the functionalities that you spoke about are an occupier decision. And we often talk about tenant engagement apps and, you know, we businesses engage staff, buildings don't. And the functionality you're talking about is an occupier decision, not a building management decision. The things that you have control of as a landlord, as an operator, and not how, well, they are there to support the conversation around optimization, but actually there are 146 hybrid working booking platforms. Do you genuinely believe that you as a property management team have selected the right one for a multi-tenant building? They're going to buy from you. 
you know, the, the thinking about the silos, but also is in what is in your remit, what's in your gift, what's in the importance of your operational delivery that is actually helping someone choose their desk booking system. Depending on how big their business is, they might have one already. They might have a multinational agreement with another company. So what we've seen a lot of is people buying very broad products that do lots of things, but actually when an occupier comes along, it's like, well, no, we don't need 50% of that. So we just turn that off or, well, we can't turn it off, it's in your service charge. So that's really where it's understanding, you know, there is valuable things out there, but actually the role of real estate that plays in that has to be relevant. You know, we, it's, we call it tenant amenity apps. You have an amenity, you have amenities that are available, that are bookable, that has information, you probably do need one. And on large, big, you know, out of town estates with millions of square feet and lots of people, there's fantastic statistics of how well those events are run and how successful they are. But in a 20,000 square foot building in the regions, going, oh, I've got a system here to book your desks. Some occupiers were like, great, it's really helpful. But I'd imagine through the wake of the pandemic, a lot of those have probably got that covered and they might not have the adoption for it. So sometimes we see real estate trying to solve a problem that, you know, they're not going to come to you to ask. Helen, do you have a view on apps and their usefulness? We use a desk booking app personally, and I don't have much more of an opinion wider. The only thing is I think all of this stuff and all this data needs to all link in together because you don't want to log on to a hundred different pieces of tech that are solving a small problem. And that's the one thing, like, even around ESG. I mean, if you were talking to a landlord, ESG is that part of that much of their job. And they don't necessarily need to see their ESG data and their performances on a daily basis. It's a case of actually what technology are they using every day? So is it an asset management platform or how do the ESG data feed in to the wider piece and how can they just move seamlessly from one to another yeah. rather than logging into everything? And I'm guessing that would go back to an occupier as well as to what do they need, what do they have access to, and how does it all feed into then what the landlord needs as well, which might be they want data around occupancy and everything else, but how's that shared? Yeah, but will that, will that imperative change as we get closer to the net zero deadline, though? Will there be a kind of a generational change that, you know, or do people don't believe that the net zero deadline is either going to be enforced or is achievable. Well, according to Property Week last month, we are nowhere near getting there. So I think it's a lot more sticks are needed to get people. Because generationally, when you're looking at, you know, millennials somewhat, but Gen Z, they're wanting to work for green companies and companies that align with their values and things like that. And once those people kind of, so that generation is starting to lead things, it'll really start to change. But at the moment, it's kind of like, well, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, perhaps, or it's too expensive, or the economy, or this or that. And, and so there's the sticks in place to get people there. It's, and that's what Property Week said as well. Until the regulations are there, until the tax incentives there, it's not really going to happen because it's not worth it. When it starts hitting valuations, once it starts hitting valuations, it's... Um, you know, yeah. that, that's the stick because yeah. we we get clients phoning us now saying we've got to understand our data because we can't sell this asset until we can provide X, Y, Z data. And we don't have that data because we don't know where it's held. So then it comes back to actually it's affecting the performance of their portfolios. Sandy Mill, major investment manager. Is that something which is becoming 
it's born more of a joy from a portfolio point of view. The, the green premium slash brown discount debate carries on. But will the country get there as a whole? Not while the government are still consenting coal plants. Sit home. You can't put a stick in, but actually still be running around in the background, making that task almost impossible to hit. Good point. Costs are too high. Indeed. So tell us a bit about this short, or the increase in shortness of leases, green leases. Where are we with green leases and how will that kind of commitment or framework then define the tech that goes into to buildings? Is that is that something, Freddie, that you see as a drive? Um, we'll have to borrow Rachel, who was on one of the panels with Amanda from an Occupy perspective. So being a law firm and head of FM was pretty well placed to do that. And I think her sentiment was generally that there's a reluctance to have any things in the leases that might essentially allow the landlord to take back the space or be them forced to be kicked out or them to be in breach of it. So actually the lawyers themselves have become lawyers uh, and are very concerned about we'll do best endeavours to hit these things. So whilst there is a, I think there's a drive towards it and there's definitely more conditions coming in, there's still a little bit of reluctance and a fear. We don't know how to solve this problem, so we're not ready to sign up to it. But hopefully it will drive forward the opportunity to bring in anything that's in the building to make it aware to people that it's there and we want the data to be shared from the day you move in and hopefully it will be less of a, a legal negotiation point mm. where if actually if we don't have it that's a concern and I think Rachel mentioned that they're starting to put it into any new leases that they do they have to have access to this because they sort of learn from past failures of where they've had troubles of doing it and I think the analogy she gave was on a building that was multi-let and their utilities are charged on a, a square footage percentage not a usage percentage and she said, there's a call center downstairs and I'm basically subsidizing their utility consumption, which I'm not very happy about. So those kind of things, I think, will be hopefully tenant-led um, as much as it is landlord-led. But it's that still nuance of, I don't want to sign up to it in case it breaches or I'm in breach of it because I'm not quite sure how to solve that problem. My diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to our Green Lease team on this very topic earlier on today, and they said that they're really struggling to to get things into contracts. And bearing in mind this is a service we sell, we're actually starting to advise clients now of go and have a handshake agreement with your tenant, have a conversation with them, have an agreement about where, but just don't have it in writing. The chances are you're all going to agree on it. It doesn't have to necessarily be in a contract. Fine. So um, green agreements, not leases. Green shape. Oh, sorry. Shape. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly that. I like it. Uh, Adrian, is it something that you'll see? With FP's talking about green leases, and FP's got a version of a green lease, but ultimately it is the conversation with the occupiers, and that's what will get it. doesn't matter if it's in the lease. If you have a good relationship with them, you get things to happen. If you don't have a good relationship with them, it just won't progress, because there'll always be, you know, unless a landlord's going to underwrite it, you've got to get 100% census to get anything into a building. And so it's all about the relationship. It's magic one time. If there's a piece of tech or something that you could extract from a building in terms of data or improving the, the occupier relationship, what would be the, the thing that you would want to see in every building? What do you think is the real pivotal point that can meet so, at least some of the challenges that we've been, been talking about? I mean... I'm going to speak as a workplace strategist, not as an occupier at this point. Um, but for me, it's, it's utilization data. So really understanding how people are, are using their spaces and that data being open and, and going both ways. 
So once we can understand how people are utilizing the building is when we can make a whole lot of different changes, either from the energy side, but also advising them on how much space they need or, or don't need and things like that. So for me, it's just sensors everywhere. Okay. Uh, so slightly following on from that, similar concept, but whilst we put those sensors everywhere, we need a uniformity on a data standard, which would help you in your 50 grand upgrade case. If there's a uniformity of data provision, you can make that case because you can then support, well, actually, if we're going to do this, it's a standard data piece. So there's going to be a capital value benefit who buying that building when we sell it is going to think, brilliant, I've done that. It's made, saved me from doing it. Yeah. But I think as an individual piece of tech to streamline all of this, not just for occupiers, for the, the next owner, whoever it is that's managing it, it's probably some form of digital twin. So you know what you're dealing with from a daily basis, from a management point of view. It's that stewardship concept, I think. What that looks like, again, need a bit of uniformity data provision, I think. Coming at it from an ESG data management perspective, um, it would be access to accurate energy data. So we, you know, from our platform, aggregating all the data that's coming in, being able to automate it and know that it's trusted investment grade data without having to double check everything. So it's sort of standardization. Just... Well, yes, standardization, but just knowing, I mean, half the time it is someone going immediate, re reading a meter and they might put a decimal point in the wrong place. I mean, that's yeah. where we're at. <laughs> yeah. So following off Helen's point, we had our uh, work uh, group beforehand. The thing that we came to was AMRs across the assembly, because I say you've got automated meter readers across all your electricity, gas and water, across your whole portfolio. It'd be transformational. You had that overnight because suddenly we've got all this data to get to be, and it's accurate data, not, all oh, right, they can read the water meter properly, so it's an estimate. Because <laughs> exactly. And that would have to, to feed into the kind of valuation process, wouldn't it? Because it would start giving you, you know, fit for purpose status on, on buildings and how they're working. And yeah. Freddie? Yeah, I was tempted to go with uh, an F-field one, but unfortunately I'm going to follow the previous two that I think we're all about the basics done better and accurate. You can't improve what you don't measure. And I think all too often it's the basics that are overlooked. And I think the processes that we've seen in place in buildings, having automatic meter readings that are accurate, but then the other part of it is transparency. Mm. Not behind the paywall, not just for someone to see, not just in a BMS head end in the basement. Transparency about that data. So access to the meter data, but... Whether it's on a digital screen as you walk in, whether it's in a mobile app, if they're not dead, you know, accessibility to the metering data, I think, is is the most important thing that I think everybody should have. Not an EPC badge stuck on the outside. So it seems incredible that there are so many, whether it's 10,000 or well, 1,000 solutions, and yet we're still at this kind of, you know, it's like everybody needs a tin opener and somebody's invented a magic mix or something. It's just like, you know, kind of, complete disconnect at the moment is it is it this standardization is it a, not Briam, not wired score or whatever but something which on the data types and the sensors i mean because the other thing is i could be wrong but you get the feeling that lots of the prop tech solutions are kind of um uh not kitchen table businesses but they're not you know help big hairy corporates getting into the space and there must be a bit of a concern over the um, resilience of these businesses to to go on doing the upgrades and doing all the product development that you need from something that you're going to 
invest in for you know, multiple years rather than just you know uh, a single year. So, is is there a lot of fallout going to be needed in the in the tech space, and then some sort of consolidation? Or? I think there'll be a lot of consolidation. Yeah. I think there's a especially on the ESG side. There's so much money being pumped into it. I mm. don't think. Yes, there's competition, but I think the competition will end up buying other competition that isn't necessarily as good. I wouldn't necessarily see it as being concerned that it's going to go under. You do hear of it, but that's only really if someone's built something that people don't need, which generally in the ESG space, it's not the case. It's about making it better. I mean, if you think about it in, say, five years ago, no one wanted to buy ESG tech. It wasn't a thing. It was a nice to have, not a need to have. People weren't going to invest any money in it. So you're not going to have 100 companies out there that are perfect, that have been developing something for 20 years because it wasn't a need. And suddenly is everyone wants it now and it's become the most important thing and they wonder why it's not perfect. It takes time. Well, you're absolutely right. Mergers and acquisitions will keep happening in the industry. And I think the fragmented prop tech part of it is, is a challenge that people don't know. I think we often talk about like the pursuit for the silver bullet is just a waste of time. It's about doing the basics first and understanding that actually you might have to have several different things to get a kit of parts to where you need to be and accepting that. But, you know, due diligence is a big part of what we do when we verify businesses is understanding kind of where are you at, how are you doing, uh, how long have you been around for, because different people are on different risk curves, you know, and you don't get fired for choosing a big corporate business versus a brand new startup. And as long as you're honest about it, when you go into that procurement or that bid, you know, you understand there's an element of risk with technology and like I always say, is that technology breaks, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, the multi-billion dollar businesses that exist have bugs, have issues, you know, so the technology will have that too. So mm. a bit of patience, I think, is there, but there's definitely a risk and a challenge about the ceiling of competition and the availability of it, but you know, it's something that we're keeping an eye on, but it hasn't been mass fallout. And Adrian mentioned the BPF, UK PropTech Association coming together. Is that a I was slightly puzzled, but I suppose BPF is largely landlords and investors and PropTech Association is, is PropTech. Is that a is that a, a good step forward? Is that to be to be welcomed? I think I think it's really positive. I think it's um it's going to get the right voices together. So it's rather than having PropTech companies working over there and BPF working over there and you've got it's in the same way that we're talking around occupiers. It's you know, you've got the big occupier events such as Cornet all the occupiers go there and you get aid, but you don't get many landlords and tech companies that are going into that as well. So it is all a bit disparate. So I think having those two together, at least it's a starting point of it working to a common agenda rather than separate. Right. Well, I think we'll, we'll wind it up there. Thank you very much to the panel. I'll just hand over to Freddie to say some. I think fun. Mike was going to say something. You can oh, Mike. He is here. He's hiding in the backgrounds in the cheap seats. I think the key thing is working in real estate now and working on multiple sides, seeing it from Adrian's perspective, the Occupy perspective, speaking to absolutely everybody in the industry, there isn't a silver bullet to it, but there has to be more communication. So my takeaway from this is don't just let this be the end of it. Keep the conversation going. Even the conversations aren't silver bullets, but there isn't enough of them. And don't let the blame culture that I see a lot creeping into things because there are some fantastic solutions. Occupiers, funnily enough, want the same things as everybody else. 
And when you get into a landlord saying, it's the occupier one, and the managing agent saying, well, have you asked that? And the tech company going, how can we help the occupier? Everyone's saying the same thing. So the silos really don't need to continue. It can be occupier focus more and more. I'm not saying that today's the answer, but your question is occupy, occupy, occupy. All the while we keep repeating that in our heads, it's going to be the norm. And there's going to be lots and lots of noise around, but there's lots of us, as you can see in this room, so thanks again today, that care about these things. So as long as we've got this clear agenda that we even make ESG, dare I say it, occupy focused, as social value, not just energy, there are a multitude of things that we can be doing. That's fine, cool. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.